Listener discretion is advised. Some listeners may find this episode disturbing as it deals with crimes against children. This podcast is not intended for young listeners. On June 12, 1977, many parents dropped their daughters off at the Magic Empire Council in Tulsa, Oklahoma for what was supposed to be a fun sleepaway Girl Scout camp, completely unaware that some of them may not ever see their daughters again. Hi everyone, I'm your host Michelle. And I'm Chad. Today we'll be covering the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders that took place on June 13, 1977. Growing up in the 90s in Oklahoma, I was involved in Girl Scouts, as were most of my friends and classmates. Girl Scout camp was the ultimate summer goal in elementary school, something that all the Scouts wanted to participate in. At camp, the story of the three murdered Girl Scouts was told as a scary story to tell around the campfire between the older and younger campers. It was not until we became adults that we learned that it was not just a scary story. It was a horrific, tragic murder that had actually happened to three innocent children. Camp Scott was a popular Girl Scout camp located near Locust Grove, Oklahoma. The summer of 1977 was the camp's 49th summer of operation. About two months before the summer camp was set to begin, the counselors gathered at the camp for their training. During this training, it was found that one of the counselor's things had been ransacked and her donuts had been taken. And in the empty box of donuts was a disturbing note reading, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. The camp director chalked this up to a prank and things proceeded as normal with training and camp. On June 12th, buses headed up Happy Camp Road into Camp Scott filled with children. Some were filled with laughter and excitement and some were more reserved and apprehensive about camp. Among those children were Lori Lee Farmer, 8, Doris Denise Milner, also known as Denise, 10, and Michelle Heather Gousset, 9. The girls did not know each other but quickly became friends when they were put together in Tent 8, also known as the Kiowa Unit. Their tent was the furthest away from the counselor's tent but had its advantages because it was the closest to the bathroom. The girls were confined to their tents that evening because a thunderstorm had come through the area but the girls were all excited for what their first day of camp would hold. Campers were awoken during the night by several different noises. One counselor saw a dim light in the distance on the edge of the woods and heard some really strange noises that did not sound human but did not sound like an animal she recognized. Upon further investigation, she could not find anything suspicious, so she checked on the tents, made sure the girls were all safe and sound, and went back to bed. So she didn't notify anyone about this at the time? Not that I can tell from what I read about it. You would think this would be something to share, right? You would think what we already find strange gets so much worse. Later in the night, a camper was awoken by a young girl's screams, while another woke up to a flashlight being shown into her tent. But neither knew what to do, so they just went back to sleep. What? After all these strange things going on, everyone just goes back to sleep? <laughs> I know, right? I guess back then everyone just kind of assumed these things were pranks. Keep in mind we're talking 43 years ago and this camp had operated for decades without incident. Fair point. So what happened next? At 6 a.m. a counselor was headed to the shower. She wanted to get up early and beat the other counselors there so that she could get hot water for her shower. I would imagine hot water would be a commodity with so many girls in one place. <laughs> right? And on her way, she saw something out of the corner of her eye, a sleeping bag. It was just off the path to the showers, about 150 yards away from tent 8. 
At first sight, she thought it was luggage that had been dropped there. Like bags and stuff that the campers maybe didn't get off the buses with them? Exactly right. And upon further investigation, she found out that it was the body of one of the campers. Oh, wow, that'd be horrible. I know, I could not even imagine coming up on something like that. As the counselors and staff gathered around, it was soon realized that there was a total of three separate sleeping bags with three little girls inside. Lori, Denise, and Michelle had all been raped and murdered. Two of the girls had been beaten to death and one had been strangled. The other campers were not made aware of what had happened and were quickly put on buses headed back to Tulsa to reunite with their families. I could totally understand not telling all those little girls about the details. What a crazy scene to wake up to. I couldn't even imagine. Although the victims' families had been notified, the parents that were waiting at the headquarters to pick up their girls would not feel relief until they saw their daughters step off of the bus. Did the other parents know any of the details about what exactly happened at all? Not exactly. The families had initially been told that there was an accident that had happened, but although media wasn't anything like it is now, there was no social media, text messages, cell phones, nothing like that, but the media had already broken the story on the news on television, and everyone had started to piece together what had happened to those innocent little girls. So I've actually seen a lot on the investigation, and it is, well, very interesting to say the least. Yeah, so the camp was cleared of all campers and those not pertinent to the investigation, and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations, or OSBI, was called in. Tulsa, along with the Oklahoma State Highway Patrol, came in to help with the investigation. A flashlight, nylon rope, and duct tape were found next to the girls' bodies. The rope and duct tape were found to have been stolen from a farmhouse just about one mile from the crime scene, but the owner of the home was quickly cleared through a lie detector test. As unbelievable as this crime is, the investigation is going to take some crazy twists and turns that no one saw coming. Right, and there would be one key investigator in this case that would use Native American traditions to aid in it. A man by the name of Harvey Pratt, a full-blood Arapaho, and an agent with the OSBI. Remember this name as we get further into the investigation. Very quickly, a suspect named Gene Leroy Hart came into play. Hart had been sentenced to three consecutive 10-year sentences for kidnapping and raping two pregnant women in Tulsa in 1966. He was paroled after just 28 months. He was arrested again in Tulsa in 1969 on four counts of first-degree burglary and was sentenced to 305 years in prison. In 1973, he escaped from the Mays County Jail. Which isn't far from Camp Scott at all. Right, and when he kidnapped and raped the women from Tulsa, he tied them up and left them to die in the forest in Locust Grove, which is also by Camp Scott. So I can see why his name was brought up so quickly in this case. He was also raised just about a mile from Camp Scott, so he would have been very familiar with the area. Right, for our listeners that don't know, northeastern Oklahoma has a large population of Cherokee Indians, most of which have strong cultural beliefs. According to legend, the Great Spirit gave the Cherokee fire and told them as long as the fire burned, the Cherokee would survive and prosper. Medicine men still keep the fire burning in a secret location in Gore, Oklahoma. Many Cherokees still solve critical problems by smoking the sacred tobacco or consulting medicine men whose powers are legendary. Tracking dogs, nicknamed Wonder Dogs, were flown in to help track down the suspects. 
It was claimed that these dogs had helped solve an eight-month-old case in Pennsylvania, and they promised to provide a break in this case within the next 48 hours. One of the agents said that a Cherokee medicine man had placed a curse on the dogs and that they would soon die. All of the agents just kind of laughed this off except for one agent, Harvey Pratt, which we mentioned a few moments ago. He seems like a guy that kind of knows some things. <laughs> yes, and that would prove to be correct. Soon the laughter from the other investigators would fade away when one of the wonder dogs died suddenly, and later the second would run out in front of a moving car and ultimately not survive. This is where the Native American medicine man really grabbed my attention. These key topics really fascinated me. It does get pretty crazy, and upon further investigation, they found a cave not far from camp where it looked like someone had been hiding out. The investigators found four small fires in a half-moon shape with broken tobacco around it. This pointed towards the Native American, which Hart was, having been there because of the tobacco and the number four were both very significant in the Native American culture. Right. In our research, we found that Native American traditions use the number four a lot. You have the four seasons, four elements, four phases of the moon, four directions, etc., etc., Right, and in the cave, they also found a newspaper clipping that matched the newspaper that was found in the flashlight at the scene. It was stuffed in the flashlight to help the connection to the batteries. So this linked the cave to the scene of the murders. They also found the glasses that were stolen from the counselors of the Kiowa unit inside the cave, along with some crumpled up pictures of an unidentified woman. So it would be fair to say there was no doubt that the murderer had been in this cave. I would say so as well, and the investigators felt the same way. Agent Pratt went off to burn some of the tobacco he was given by a Native American medicine man that he sought out, and he also had some additional medicine that he had acquired from the medicine man to help them in the investigation and to help them find the killer. Shortly after, the phone rang in the mobile headquarters. Like, right after. This whole story is pretty crazy. Absolutely. It was a former OSBI agent that said that one of the women in the crumpled up picture could be identified, that the picture had been taken by an officer who was also a wedding photographer and had seen the pictures in the media. And you won't guess who the pictures had been developed by. Dun, dun, dun. None other than Jean Leroy Hart, the escaped convict that they already suspected. Wow. At this point, it seems that they got tunnel vision. Gene Leroy Hart was the only one on their radar. Well, the coincidences were pretty undeniable. Didn't he take the prescription glasses of one of the women that he kidnapped and raped in Tulsa, just like the counselor's glasses that were found at the scene? Yes, but one thing I found that does not seem extremely well known, but I did read it in a couple of different articles, was that during the autopsy, it was found that the girls were beaten with two different objects using right and left hands. Most people would only use their dominant hand, which leads me to ask, was there more than one killer there that night? I could come to that same conclusion as well. However, a second suspect is never really brought up in this investigation that would be what you call, well, damning. True, but there were a few things that were starting to make it look like it might not be Hart. The biggest was that there was sperm found inside one of the victims. Hart had had a vasectomy, so there would not be any sperm in his semen. But nevertheless, the authorities still kept all resources on Hart. It's also noteworthy to mention this was the largest manhunt in Oklahoma state history at this time. 
After some time, detectives were informed that Hart was hiding out at a medicine man's house. This had been almost a year after the murders, but on April 6, 1978, Hart was taken into custody. When he was arrested, they found a corncob pipe on him along with a blue handheld mirror. These would later be evidence placing Hart at the Kiowa unit the night of the murders. After he was arrested, it was proven that his vasectomy was not successful, so there was sperm in his semen. Also, his hair matched exactly to the hair that was found on the duct tape that bound Denise Milner. To most people, this would look like a slam dunk case, but there are many people that still believe that he was innocent. Right, the people from the area would really rally to his defense. Exactly, he had become like a sort of local hero by claiming that he had been wrongly accused. He was also a local football legend from his high school days, and many people just could not believe that he could have done something like this. It's like everyone forgot that he had kidnapped and raped two pregnant women and escaped custody. Right? It seemed that way. I just can't wrap my head around that part. When his trial started, it seemed like the families of the victims were in the minority. It seemed that they were the only ones that wanted to see Hart found guilty. There were many supporters there, including four medicine men who were there to influence the outcome of the trial. One other thing I read was that he acquired a Native American lawyer. Money was raised and some donated by the tribe for his defense team so that he could get a fair trial. Unfortunately, the prosecution does not have the right to ask for a change of venue for the trial. That right is reserved for the defense. And of course, the defense is not going to change the location of the trial. Everyone there loved Hart and looked at him as a hero. I'd have to say if I wouldn't want to change the venue if I was in his shoes either. Right? Me either. During the proceedings, an, ex an expert testified that Hart's semen matched that found in one of the victims and that the hair found on the duct tape matched Hart's. The women in the picture that he developed linked him to the cave with the duct tape and the rope and the newspaper that was found in the flashlight at the scene. The corncob pipe and mirror that they found when Hart was arrested were confirmed to belong to one of the campers that was at the camp the night the murders occurred. During the trial, the defense made several claims that Hart had been framed. And while the hair and semen evidence was similar, that it couldn't be determined to be exact. Yeah, DNA testing in the 70s is nowhere near as advanced as it is today. Right. And the sheriff was beyond frustrated with the accusations that he framed Hart. So he met with one of the medicine men outside of the courthouse and asked him if there was an Indian way to prove who was lying. This part is especially fascinating to me. The medicine man had the sheriff tear some of the sacred tobacco into pieces and place a piece in each of the four corners of the courthouse. In a documentary we watched, this is supposed to be sacred tobacco and only used in very special circumstances. Right, it's said to be the most powerful medicine in the Native American culture. The medicine man prayed over the four portions of the old tobacco and he prayed for the ultimate truth. The only answer to this prayer would be life for the honest party and certain death for the dishonest. Ultimately, if Gene Hart or another person did this, they would die for their crime. It did not take long for the jury to come back with a verdict and the result would leave the family of the victims stunned. In March of 1979, Gene Leroy Hart was found not guilty of the murder of Lori Lee Farmer, Doris Denise Milner, and Michelle Heather Gousset. The courtroom erupted in a celebration from all of Hart's supporters. Yeah, it seems like there was real pandemonium in the courtroom. 
yeah. And again, did they all forget about the other crimes that he had been convicted of? Seems hard to believe. After the not guilty verdict, Hart was escorted back to prison to finish out his previous sentence. But his prison stay would be short-lived. On June 4, 1979, Hart dropped dead of a heart attack after exercising in the prison yard. Could this be the prayers of the medicine man being fulfilled or just a coincidence? I mean, June 4th, 4, after all the coincidences? Really? (laughs) I know, right? They just keep piling up, it seems. So years later, the DNA found at the scene was tested again in 2008 with more advanced DNA techniques, but was still found that the DNA sample was too deteriorated to produce results. In 2017, the Mays County Sheriff raised $30,000 for new testing of the evidence, but the results of these tests have never been released. In the years following the death of the girls, some of the families involved have used their experience to make positive changes for other families that have had to endure the same tragedies. Richard Gousset went on to throw himself into the victims' rights in Oklahoma and help pass the Crime Victim and Witness Bill of Rights, a package of laws adopted by the state legislature. Sherry Farmer started the Oklahoma chapter of Parents of Murdered Children on what would have been Lori's 16th birthday. It has been 43 years since the horrendous murders that stormy night in June when three innocent little girls lost their life, and justice still has not been served for them and their families. Hopefully, as we make new advances in DNA testing, the families can one day finally have peace that the person responsible for taking their little girls away from them has not been living free all of this time.